Hey, my name is Josh Korak. I'm a mental health counselor in the Northern Colorado area. In this space, I get the chance to interview professionals in the field, talk about mental illness, self-care, and so much more. With this show, I ask you to join me in doing what one of my favorite philosophers, a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, says. Smile, breathe, and go slowly. This is Care with Korak. Hey, hey guys, it's been a minute. was planning on uh, releasing this episode last week and realized it just wasn't doable for me. I'd just gotten back from a trip and uh, just a stressful time of the year, which I'm sure you all can, can relate with, but for me, it's just wrapping up the semester and trying to finish my internship hours. And uh, unfortunately, this project took the back seat last week. So, but it has been a good couple of weeks. Let me tell you guys, I've got some really exciting news to share with all of you, and um, it's going to be a good couple of weeks going forward. Uh, we've got some really cool guests to to finish up the season. So, and uh, and some of those good news I'm I'm going to share with you guys, but just not yet because uh, it's a secret for now. But I will share the good news about our special guest today. I'm joined by Chuck Pasaglia. Chuck was a judge advocate on active duty in the United States Navy, a litigation attorney with Moy Giles, now Moy White, I think I'm saying that right, in Denver, and in-house employment law counsel for Mountain States Employers Council Incorporated. In 2003, he founded Employment Law Solutions Incorporated, a consulting firm in Denver, Colorado, which specializes in providing employment law and human resources advice and counsel, impartial workplace investigations, and enter training courses for the entire workforce, and critical compliance matters including harassment and violence prevention, ethical decision-making, paying employees properly, managing employees' absences, and protections under federal and state anti-discrimination laws. Chuck is a frequent speaker at regional and local human resource conferences in the Rocky Mountain West. Chuck presents more than 150 seminars each year to thousands of employees engaged in every type of work in this country. He has trained the entire workforce of both public and private employers and frequently and frequently gives one-on-one sessions to executives needing a more in-depth understanding of employment law and their decision-making. He's been interviewed and quoted in the Denver Post and various human resource publications. Chuck has been an adjunct professor at Regis University in Denver, Colorado, and is actively involved in local human resources and veteran support organizations. He's a retired captain Uh, in the United States Navy Reserve, and is a veteran of combat support operations in the Middle East and East Africa. Chuck received a degree in philosophy from St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri, and his law degree from the University of Denver in Denver, Colorado. At the University of Denver, he served on the board of editors of the Denver University Law Review. He's also the author of the book, uh, Can I Bring My Pet Monkey to Work?, which is a fun, anecdotal series of stories that Chuck has experienced of people asking him some of the most bizarre questions in the workplace. It's definitely a fun read and, um, and informative. 
In this episode, Chuck and I get to talk about mental health in the workplace, uh, which areas of our mental health are and are not protected by law, the complexity of grief, and I feel a little bit bad because I, I kind of monopolized the end of the episode, but I think it was for good reason because Chuck and I get to discuss the secrets to dealing with anxiety. If you want to learn more about Chuck, check out his website at www.defendwork.com for more information. Follow me at Josh Korak for more mental health content. I'm doing a book giveaway of The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk on my Instagram, so make sure to give me a follow uh, to find out how to enter. Depending on how many people enter, I might even do more than one copy or more than one book, so check it out. Well... Let's not waste any more time and get into it. This is Care with Korak with Chuck Pasiglia. Josh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you great. Can you hear me? I can. You're fantastic. (laughs) I like the background you got going on right now. Oh, I can switch them around, my friend. Well, how are you doing? I'm doing good, actually. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Uh, you know, I don't do many podcasts, so I'm expecting you to guide me through it, but I want to help you out for sure. Good. Well, good. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't have anything specific in mind tonight other than, um, you know, I was just, uh, you know, I'll do a whole little introduction about you in the beginning and just kind of how I got introduced to you, but. I, you know, met you through that uh, workplace respect class. Um, and I was just really, it was interesting to me. I mean, you brought up some really cool ideas when it came to like, we, I think a big topic was the idea of unconscious bias. And so um, that was a big reason I wanted you to come on just with your experience. And um, I'm sure there's a lot of stories you can share and tying some of this back into this overall topic of mental health. So yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. So why don't we just start off with a little bit of a introduction and background. Just tell us a little bit about your experience and how you got to where you are, what you do now, all that good stuff. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for asking. I'm from Colorado. I've been an attorney for about 30 years. So I went to University of Denver for law school, uh, one of the hometown law schools here in Colorado. Uh, started out in uh, many different, uh, have had many lives as a lawyer. I uh, was in a large law firm doing basically litigation I was a lawyer in the military for a number of years. Uh, It's called the JAG. I um, then settled into this employment law practice for about the last 20 or so years. I've been doing that exclusively. And uh, primarily, I represent employers, give advice and counsel in employment matters. I do a lot of training that you've experienced. And I do a lot of workplace investigations where we try to resolve conflicts, find the truth, and hopefully curb people's behavior that is outside the bounds of organizational expectations. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I have a lot of respect for lawyers. My best friend is currently in law school over in Maryland. Awesome, really? That's good. Yeah, so I've just been kind of tracking along with him and his progress. And every time he reaches out and he's telling me all about the work he's got to do. I'm like, Ooh, you know, I do not envy that. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel for him. Good luck to your friend. Uh, you know what? Yeah. It's, it's good to have a law degree. It really is. There's a lot of things you can do. Uh, my middle daughter is in law school as well right now. And so she has no idea what she's going to do, but she's working hard. Probably like your friend. 
Yeah. Could you could you speak a little bit to that process? I mean, I feel like for the us common folk, right? We hear law school and it's just like the bar, right? All these overwhelming things about law school. And um, can you speak to like what your experience was briefly and, and what that was like for you? Yeah, you know, I was one of those kids that was a good student. Um, but I also majored in the liberal arts. So I wasn't gonna be an engineer, wasn't gonna be a doctor, and um that leaves you with relatively fewer choices when you get to the end of college. And so my roommate and I, both good students, uh, decided to apply to law school. I was amazed to get in. And then law school is like a lot of other graduate schools. Uh, but what's nice about it is you really learn a lot about how the world works because so much of what everyday life in the world is, is part of the law school experience. So that's why I recommend it to people. It's certainly not overwhelming if you are good at being a student and you like to read, but really, if you're a curious person and if you really want to help people, it's a great career path. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely seems like you get more of that hands-on approach with people. And um, what was that, I'm guessing, some of the reason that you wanted to become a lawyer? Or what was really the, the driving factor for you? You know, for me, it was just, uh, I was one of those, uh, I remember my dad used to say, hey, you know, you should think about being a lawyer. Uh, one, you like to talk a lot, but uh, two, it's just a good career because there's, a, you know, you can do a lot of different things with it. So I think my parents planted the seed in my head, even when I was in college and, you know, just as something to do after school was over. And I really wasn't thinking much about it. I almost went into the military, like I grew up in a very... Uh, kind of restricted family. My father was in the military. My grandfather was in the military. Didn't really feel like that was going to be the right thing for me at that point in time. So I did eventually go in the military, but not uh, much later. Yeah, because I thought I saw on your website that you are a veteran, that you were in the military for a period. and Yeah, it was good for me. Uh, and it was good. That's another area where we can help people out and learn a lot about yourself. And sure. so it was, it was my service. Uh, and I think anybody who does good service, including helping people who are going through emotional crisis or difficulty is always good to help your fellow person. Sure. Yeah, definitely. What was your experience in the military? What did you do? What was that period like for you? Yeah, I was a JAG, a military lawyer. And so I went to law school. Then I also went into the military. So when you're a military lawyer, you're assigned to different uh, capacities. So for a time, I was a defense attorney. For another period of time, I was a prosecutor. But my primary job was I was a lawyer for a, a combatant command. So I was the lawyer for a seagoing command um, amphibious assault group. Their job is to put Marines into combat. And we did that um, during Desert Storm, which now seems like a million years ago. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what, what does that look like from your end as a lawyer, right? I'm guessing you didn't necessarily see combat or maybe only, not. yeah, in my, you know, in, in my career, it was limited, you know, got shot at with uh, missile attacks, oh, wow. um, traversed minefields, um, Small thing. you know, so it was those kinds of things that were the primary threats against the Navy in that conflict. Um, and then my job was in terms of planning for conflict. So we do targeting of what objectives are, and that often requires a legal review. And then when my particular group in combat reached the combat zone, 
in you might remember desert storm a lot of the iraqi forces gave up and so then they became our prisoners of war and we have legal regimes to protect them at the end of conflict wow yeah so that i mean that sounds like a very interesting experience to say that yeah it was great it was great for me i think i helped out a lot and i think uh it was kind of an interesting experience i was very much younger back then uh, but i'm glad i did it yeah definitely um so you jumped around you you were in the military as a lawyer and and what were some of the other things that you did before now again I was a lawyer in a big law firm in downtown Denver, which was all just um, business litigation. So corporations would have disputes, hire a lawyer, uh, plunge uh, these sides into seemingly eternal disputes um, and did that for a while. Then I was a in-house lawyer. I gave employment law advice inside of an organization, did that for a number of years. But the last 18 or so years of it is working as a lawyer by myself. Yeah. doing the employment lawyer. Exclusively employment. I could not do your divorce or write you a will to save my life or legal career. Uh, I only stay in my lane. Right. What drew you to this side of law? You know, uh, it was really interesting is a recommendation of a friend I went to law school with who uh, was working and uh, was a She's now passed away, sadly, much too young, but she was a really good friend of mine. And she said, you would love this kind of work. And she had a heavy influence on me, as a lot of friends do. And um, I went on that path and I never regretted it. It worked out to be great. And she was right. Yeah, that's awesome. And we thought, you know, you know, I have, you know, I have a lot of passion for everything. And, right. and so we've, you've had the chance to experience that. And so, you know, it's good. You know, there's probably nothing that touches more people's lives in many respects than their job. And so it's been good. I get the chance to help people um, try to get through work a little bit easier. Yeah. I mean, well said. I mean, we, we spend so much of our life working, right? Um, and Sadly. Sadly, but I mean, in, in some ways, it can be a good thing, right? It becomes such a big part of your identity and and um, huge cornerstone in terms of finding meaning and purpose in the world. And uh, so, what a what a special opportunity to take part in that for for various people and to help them along that journey. Yeah, work is life. They go hand in glove, and you know you can't really escape working. And all things take work, but. Um, I, I do think it's such a critical part of life. And you know what? If work is an unpleasant experience, then it's really going to make the rest of your life much more difficult. Yeah, definitely. That's why it seems like it's a good fit for you. It seems like something you really enjoy. Yeah, it's fun. I, you know, I like to have fun. And yeah. uh, you can have fun at work. And I think you can find joy at work. And a lot of people's identity and self-worth is definitely part of their jobs. Yeah, yeah I can definitely tell just based off of... Um, you know, the time, the limited time I got to experience your teaching and, uh, and then also your book. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. I love the fact that you got it, Josh. You too. Yes, there it is. You have it right there. So for my, my viewers or not viewers, my listeners who can't see what we're talking about, uh, Chuck here wrote, a crazy, awesome book, a very fun book. I haven't, I haven't read, uh, all of it yet, but yeah, it's somewhere around here. <laughs> and um, it's just a fun book. Like the, the title is, um, Can I Bring My Pet Monkey to Work? Correct. Uh, so good. Yeah. A question somebody asked me, could they bring their emotional support animal to work? Um, and so the book is filled with questions people have asked me. 
about their job and I took the funniest ones and I tried to answer them to the best of my ability. Yeah. Entertaining book and, and super useful. There's some really useful stuff in there. If you want to learn about how work works, at least from the legal side of the work life house, uh, it is a good book to read to learn a lot about how the law of the workplace um, is today. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know if you can tell with all my bookcases back here, but you definitely gave it to the right person. <laughs> I am loving the whole deal you have there with the books and the microphone and it's this is a legit setup. <laughs> I try. I I've been trying to put like my logo on my TV here, but then the light just kind of flushes me out and Oh, that would be cool too. I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I'd be mean, neat if you could actually you could do this visually, it would be so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully one day, maybe I can figure out like a, a video. Gosh, I'm going to help you, my friend. <laughs> there you go. I appreciate it. Um, well, well, what's some of the things that you just enjoy most? I mean, we've talked a little, you've, you've hinted at some of that already, but like, what really do you enjoy most about what you do? Wow. That's a great question. So what I, I love what I do. I am, I will say this. I sometimes feel uh, badly for people that do not have jobs or careers that are particularly fulfilling. I love what I do for a few reasons. One is, and you got a little bit of this. I think if you can explain people something about their rights and help them a little bit. So when they are feeling either mistreated or they're feeling like they have no choices or employees feel as though um, that, you know, they're not being appreciated fully for what they bring to the table. Right. I think my job helps resolve some of those conflicts. And so I feel like, and you know, and you've been part of it. I feel like I'm educating people. Um, so I, I consider myself to be more teacher than lawyer. And I do think that when people walk out of the class, they go, wow, you know, I do have a lot more rights and protections than I thought I had before. And even though I'm not having that bad a time or that difficult a time, I feel like I can withstand the body blows of work a little bit better because now I know a little bit more about my rights and I know what to do if someone I think is mistreating me. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I make problems go away. I think I resolve a lot of conflicts. Uh, and that's something I specialize in. Um, and, and that's what I was going to say is it, it does seem like you do a lot of teaching. Like I was looking at your website before this and you offer a lot of different courses that you teach. About 30 of them uh, across the full spectrum of workplace legal requirements. Uh, I do them quite a bit. I probably teach a class um more than over a hundred days a year. I think wow. this year I'm going to hit 150 days a year of just educating employees about their rights in the workplace. And yeah. um, so it's a lot. It's, and it's extraordinarily fun. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and, and what's, you know, on the other hand, what's some of the more difficult aspects of your work? Well, sadly, uh, some of what I do does go to um, greater conflict where people feel the need um, because one side or the other hasn't been very cooperative or able to resolve conflict. So the difficult part of my job is when things descend into madness. And usually that means a lawsuit. And obviously any lawsuit is expensive and it's really emotionally expensive. I, I think no one really ever wins in a lawsuit because the emotional capital that you expend um, is, I, I think, 
often not seen until very far down the road. So that's the worst case scenario for me is if uh, we can't resolve conflicts and they become very expensive and very stressful and very damaging to work relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, even as somebody outside of that relationship, it's important to you to, to help resolve some of that and, and to repair that relationship for them. Yeah. And the, and the other thing that's really sad to me, I mean, sad, and, you know, not, it, it's a reality. What is difficult for me is, you know, the realization that somebody may no longer be qualified for their job because, uh, you know, you talked about, you know, this is what, this is what you do is that when someone's mental health is either deteriorating or um, they have a measure of incapacity that suddenly people start to realize that this person can't fully engage on the job, can't fully do the expectations of the job. And that's a difficult path to try to guide somebody who can no longer um, do their job. I, I give an example of this. I had a very sad case where a law enforcement officer, and you know, I work with a lot of law enforcement, um, had been in a shooting, um, had been the person who shot a criminal suspect um, and ruled properly a sad part of that job. But the officer, and this is something that doesn't make the newspapers, the officer had a profound case of post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, to the point where there is an open question of whether they'll ever be able to go back to not only this job, which is unlikely, but almost any kind of job in which they would have this amount of pressure on them. So that officer probably is someone who's going to struggle for a long time to find gainful employment. Yeah. Yeah. Trauma is, is, can be very debilitating as I'm sure you know and um, from from your experiences with law and, and also in the military I'm sure you saw a decent yeah. amount of that and um, wow that's really sad to hear that's tough and that's that's the hard part of the job is when someone you know when someone is no longer qualified to do, do their job you know I always tell supervisors it's really not your job to fire anybody it's just to let someone know whether they're meeting expectations or not whether they're a success or a failure. But when it comes to somebody who's had a profound traumatic event, um, that's something that you know only you might know more about. That It's really the realm of doctors, psychotherapists, um, therapists, and it's very hard for people to have conversations about that. And it's really hard to explain it to somebody who really just wants to work and go back to work, that they may not be able to go to work. Yeah. And, I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up because it, this is part of the reason I'm doing this, right, is to help with some of that destigmatization. Let me say that again, destigmatization, um, help to facilitate some of those conversations. You know, I'm about it's it's funny that we're bringing this up because I'm about two and a half hours away from being certified as a trauma professional. So I've been doing a lot of research. Good for you. Uh, oh, it's it's great. I love it. You know, it's it's such an interesting Yield to work and I guess to put it simply, but um, it's it's intense how intrusive trauma symptoms can be and how debilitating. And you know, I brought this up in a previous episode where I talked to somebody about this, but trauma isn't so much a disorder, right? Um, people we call it PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And we conceptualize it as there's something wrong with you, right? There's something wrong with your brain. Uh, or, let me rephrase that. There's something wrong with um, 
like it's a mental illness, right? Is how we conceptualize it, right? But really what post-traumatic stress is, uh, it's an injury, right? It is a brain injury. It's, it's something that um, is primarily body affected, right? We, we treat, and this is kind of getting deep into mental health psychology, but we've treated trauma in the past very cognitively, right? Using um, different cognitive techniques to try and retrain how we think about the trauma when the reality is, is trauma is something that our body experiences, right? Like statistically, um, I think some, something around 90% of us go through what we can define as a traumatic event, right? Meaning that first criteria for, for PTSD and yet only seven to 9% of Americans qualify for what they, they meet criteria for PTSD. Like how interesting is that? Yeah, that's wild. And I'm surprised it's that low in many in many respects. But right, and and it could just be a case of underreporting, which is pretty common when it comes to situations like that. But but it is a reality of um, it's it's how our body perceives the trauma, right? Um, and that's been a big kind of cornerstone of this trauma training I'm doing. And so when it comes to treating trauma, it's all about okay, how do we relax the body, right? How do we relax ourselves when we are in the present day, when we're experiencing these threat responses, um, how do we relax our body to get through that, right? Because if we can have a relaxed body, like physiologically, uh, we can't have stress in a relaxed body. It's impossible. Absolutely. Well, this is the marriage of sort of what you and I both do is that, as you know, we talked about it briefly in the classes, you know, mental illness is a disabling condition protected under workplace laws. Employers have an affirmative duty to address it. But you alluded to this in your introduction is that, you know, there is so much bias, conscious and unconscious about people who experience um, mental illness. And as broad as that term means, that it really derails so many um, relationships because people simply misunderstand what another person's going through. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, you think of the idea of like, uh, you know, what is it like for somebody to go in and say, Oh, Hey, I need to call out sick because I broke my leg. Right. Versus, Oh, I need to call out sick because I'm having thoughts of suicide today. Right. Like even saying that it just seems so different, right. Because of the stigma we have against things like suicide, Oh my God. Yeah. Or even just things that, you know, when someone says, you know, I don't know if you watch the show, Ted Lasso. Um, I haven't. I've heard it's really, it, but it's funny. Well, it, just, it is a great show. It's about kindness, but uh, one of the characters experiences panic attacks. And, and the show is interesting in a demonstration of sort of how people stigmatize a potentially very serious um, illness and it's a great example where, you know, he's at work, he's got a job, but he has these debilitating panic attacks that cause him to crumple. And, you know, I, many people just simply can't sympathize with, you know, you know who uh, everybody's been panicked before. Everybody's been afraid of something and they can't really embrace what someone else is going through. Do you ever see that? Have, have you seen that come up in your work experience with working with uh, different employers and maybe like, you know, higher, higher up in the ranks in terms of employment? Do you ever see that where these uh, supervisors or managers are just not understanding maybe what their bottom line is going through in terms of their mental health or? Yes, I think it happens a lot is, you know, as people move up the food chain in, 
in organizations, I think in many ways they um, lose empathy and they start to depersonalize people in favor of outcomes. And so I don't think they're very good at identifying people that are struggling. And if they have an illness or injury, I think it's very difficult to admit you have a problem because, you know, it's not really our society's um, accepting value to admit or be vulnerable to having a weakness. Um, And that's certainly at the leadership ranks. It's hard for someone to walk in a room full of people and say, I'm sad today, or I'm ill today, or I'm panicked, or I need some time away. That really, you know, organizational environments, as much as we, you know, I think as much as we talk more and more about mental illness and the pandemic has really opened up people's eyes to the, um, to mental illness because people struggle considerably during the pandemic, even many, many more people vocalized their struggles. Um, but we have so far to go in terms of understanding this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think of I, one of the things I do for work is not, not at the jail, but uh, I work in a private practice as well. And one of the things we do there is uh, working with DHS with domestic violence victims, oh. traders, survivors, um, kind of that whole population, typically of people who haven't been charged yet or aren't being charged, but have been kind of involved in some sort of domestic violence incident. And so one of the classes we do with them is we go through just statistics and like what the statistics show when it comes to domestic violence. And we have this whole couple of pages on workplace statistics when it comes to domestic violence. And um, looking at things like there, there's one that in particular that comes to mind. I'm probably going to butcher the actual statistic, but something like, you know, 90% of um, employees on the bottom line believe that domestic violence is an issue uh, in, I don't know if it's in the workplace or just, just believe it's, believes it's something that affects their workplace, I guess. Uh, whereas only like 40% of the top line on the other hand, believes it's an issue. Oh, really? See, that's interesting. One, I believe that um, just generally from my own experience, I've handled so many domestic violence cases that spilled into the workplace because of course, sadly, even someone who's trying to flee or hide from a domestic aggressor, the domestic assailant or the potential domestic assailant always knows where to find their potential victim because they're working between eight and five or, you know, whatever shift it is. And so workplaces do have to struggle with domestic violence. And I've had a number of those cases, which have got, have been horrible outcomes uh, for the amazingly for the victim of domestic violence. It can really inhibit someone's working life if they're on the, they're already on the receiving end of a difficult circumstance, an, an aggressive person, but amazingly, it can also affect their continued employment, um, and that's sure. that's the double dose of injury right there. Yeah, and I, you know, I often work with uh, survivors of domestic violence who, you know, don't even get the opportunity to go into work anymore. They get that right taken away from them because there's so much power and control being um, enforced in that relationship where they just don't even get to leave the house or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I can only imagine where their job uh, is taken from them by their domestic aggressor. You know, I had a weird, sad case. You talk about the difficult part of my job. I had a case a number of years ago in which um, 
and it happened to be a woman that was on the receiving end of um, significant amount of domestic um, violence from her partner and the partner made threats against her. And what was really sad about it and was difficult to manage was her coworkers, while they certainly understood this threat, her coworkers lobbied for her to lose her job because they were fearful of this aggressor coming to work for her, but also potentially collaterally harming them. And so while it was the saddest thing, because clearly everybody wanted to help the person, but at the same time, they were so concerned about how this domestic violence problem would impact them that ultimately it presented a difficult situation for the employer to say, what do I do with this person who is clearly being harmed and clearly needs to break the cycle of violence, but everybody here is shaking in their boots because they're afraid this domestic aggressor is going to come to work and hurt her and many other people. Yeah. So the fear was just so widespread. It just it didn't affect only the victim or the survivor of that that specific case, but it affected kind of the whole world. It rattled the entire organization. Um, and you know, interestingly, we ended up to tell you I try to resolve conflicts, and I'm not proud of it. But we literally um, ended up giving this very nice person, who by the way was a very good worker, mm-hmm. essentially a financial package to encourage her to leave this workplace, but also to encourage her to flee this domestic aggressor. So we set her up with um, a group that could potentially help her and get her in. There are residential living arrangements for people who are victims of domestic violence. And so, you know, we rationalized that we tried to help her, but in many ways it was horrible to be her because she had the insult and injury of losing her job as well as having someone who's trying to harm her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, great, great insights. And it, it comforts me in some ways, at least that you guys were, were trying, right. You're trying to offer her further support. You're trying to get her in maybe a safer environment and away from that, that kind of situation. And it, it speaks to just a larger complexity of problems, right. Both with maybe workplace policies and I don't know, stuff that you could probably speak better to. And then yeah. to a larger problem that is domestic violence and how, much of a cycle it is and how um how widespread it really is colorado law allows an employer to get a restraining order against a domestic aggressor to protect its employees i've done that before where we had a creeper ex-boyfriend i worked i represented a bank and he would oddly he would while she was on her shift while she was working he would park in his truck in the parking lot and sit there all day. And, you know, they had a huge bank of windows that they could see out into the parking lot. And he would sit there all day staring into this bank. And it, again, you know, it goes back to this point where all these employees were terrified of this person and what they might do 
And in this case, you know, the employee didn't lose her job, but we got a restraining order to keep him at least some distance away from the workplace. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting too. Like you bring up this this idea of you know, just it's it scares everybody who's working there, and I can't help, and I'm sure. Maybe again, you've got some experience or stories with this, but I can't help but think, especially in Colorado, where you know mass shootings are just such a big thing here. Um, and I can't help thinking, putting myself in those situations and thinking, like, okay, is this guy going to come in and like, you know, is he planning? Is he prepping? Like, what is going on with this guy? You know, obviously, it's it's a more complex situation than that. But just thinking, if I was just a bystander in that situation, how scared I would be. Oh my gosh, think about it. Um, you know, I mean, nothing can, we can't even imagine necessarily the alarm of, of actual workplace violence manifesting itself. Uh, allegedly, uh, millions of workers every year experience some form of assaultive behavior at work where someone threatens them, someone potentially gets in their face, someone um, might even... Um, um, come within physical proximity and thousands of employees are assaulted um, and, and battered there. Someone makes physical contact with them. Uh, and that happens all with, with sufficient frequency. You know, that's, it, as you say that, that makes sense to me. It's hard for me to sometimes picture that because, you know, doing the work I've done, it's like a very regular thing for me, or it's at least it, it doesn't necessarily happen to me anymore. I used to work before the jail. I worked at uh, an inpatient psych hospital. So it happened on a weekly, oh, I'll bet. you know, and uh, got the stories I can tell you, but yeah. Healthcare workers have yeah. a, one of the highest incident rates of, of workplace violence. Yeah. Uh, patient on care provider violence is a, sadly all too common form of, of violence i'm getting cases now in which um healthcare workers are being threatened and even harmed by people who have strong objections to covid safety protocols mm -hmm. so they'll go to a hospital to see somebody someone will say you have to wear a mask in this ward because there's people who are um in, you know have um are having um um, symptoms or problems or they're being treated and then it immediately escalates into how dare you um, even though they're on the hospital's turf how dare you try to impose this on me and this escalates into uh, amazingly it surprises me into extreme forms of conflict and even hey. Oh, yeah. I mean, the amount of videos I've seen of that just on not necessarily in the workplace, but just on the streets. And I think back to to your class and I remember I was going to come up and talk to you afterwards. But then there's somebody <laughs> who came up and I, I don't I, I, I'm sure he wasn't being aggressive or anything. But I just remember he was coming to confront you about some sort of covid fact you had brought up or something. That yeah, exactly. you have a good memory. Yeah, he had strong feelings. I get a lot of that, of course, now because, you know, um, covid uh, vaccine mandates have presented a number of legal issues in the workplace and a number of challenges by employees. Yeah, I'm sure that's been very relevant for you. Yeah, he was loaded for bear. I remember that day. He was definitely wanted to make his point to me about it. Uh, and I'm used to that. Yeah, I was like, uh, maybe I'll just email Chuck later. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, where, where else do you see, you know, mental illness showing up? I'm thinking of like, how often do you see kind of those more, I, I say severe forms of mental illness. Like how do we even 
there there are ways that we can objectively de- define that, I guess. But you know, I'm mean, in in this case, maybe I'm thinking of the you know mental health issues such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Um, you know, what else? I mean, we could say PTSD. Um, maybe major depression. Like, how else do you see that maybe showing up in the kind of cases you're working on? Yeah, you really nailed it. Those are the most profound forms of mental illness because they come up fairly clearly in terms of um, affecting somebody's work performance. So how it how it happens in my world typically is very few people who are hired for work ever disclose or ever need to disclose an underlying diagnosis, in particular an underlying mental health diagnosis. In fact, no one would ever confess that really in an interview because of, you talked about destigmatizing um, this issue is, and I always tell people in my classes, hey, there's three things an applicant never has to tell you in order to get a job. One is if they're pregnant, Number two is what their religious beliefs are. And number three, what their underlying medical or mental health uh, condition is. But what happens in my world is after they start working and then there are objective departures from performance or behavioral expectations, someone will, for example, go off on another employee, which is commonly the basis for disciplinary action. But when confronted with these departures, that's when the employee now is forced to out, well, I'm bipolar. I, I, I end up cycling up and therefore I can't control my emotions and I have a tendency to go into, I, I had an employee that had, quote, and you would know more about this than I, Josh, but his doctor said he had, quote, intermittent explosive disorder. Okay. It is that apparently it's in the, you know, DSM five and um, this guy, yeah, I called it go off itis is that this guy just went off on people. And the problem with that, I told you earlier is, you know, and I want to be clear because I like, I like the purpose of your podcast is if people have mental health issues, if people have a diagnosed health condition, it is likely protected by a law called the American with Disabilities Act, which one protects that employee, but most importantly requires that an employer consider reasonable accommodations to allow that person to continue to work shoulder to shoulder with their non-disabled co-workers. The difficulty for people with those profound mental health issues, you talked about it, severe depression, schizophrenia, is in those cases, people have to remember there are three things that are inherently not reasonable for an employer to accommodate. In essence, three defenses for employers that limit them from accommodating people. Number one is it, there's no reasonable account. There's no reasonable accommodation. There's just simply an example of that would be you alluded to it, the workplace violence problem, where I tell everybody I'd like to kill my supervisor, or I want to punch you in the face every day so badly it makes me smile. Is well, you know what? It's hard to accommodate threats of workplace violence because obviously everyone's wondering are we walking on eggshells. So that's typically not reasonable. Um, unless the employee can get that condition under control with medications or uh, some therapy, you know, now I'm going into your world, you know, what you would prescribe to allow that person to manage that um, uh, inappropriate behavior. The second thing along similar lines is we never have to accommodate somebody who poses a current 
medically um, ascertained threat to themselves or others. So you gave the example earlier, if someone made a serious suicidal ideation, like I want to end it all. Um, the problem with the employee there is, you know, an employer doesn't have to accommodate someone who currently poses a threat to themselves, especially if work might be manifesting that threat. And the last thing we never have to accommodate really is if someone's no longer qualified for their position. They've simply become so mentally incapacitated that there's nothing that can be done to allow them to continue to work. Um, severe cases of schizophrenia, where someone, you know, literally starts to imagine an alternative universe, thinks that people are talking to them, um, or even similar, Josh, you know, I had as again, you know, I, this podcast is a good podcast because it makes people think a lot about these issues. But I always feel like I'm telling you stories that are kind of a buzzkill is I remember talking about, you know, significant, you know, mental limitations. I remember a number of years ago, I had um, um, engineering company, obviously, I wouldn't name the name of it, but um, the wife, wife of a long term employee calls the boss and says, hey, um, my spouse, your employee, is never going to tell you this, but they've been diagnosed with um, an early onset dementia. This is a person in their 50s, um, and they're already exhibiting signs of not being cognitively um, as, uh, as capable as they once were. And lo and behold, um, now, most importantly, spouses can speak on your behalf that put the employer on notice. This person had a disabling condition, triggers that duty to protect them and accommodate them. The employer jumped through hoops, you know, um, talked to the employee's doctor. He finally admitted the underlying condition. They gave him um, lists, you know, that he could follow because remember, his, you know, he could check off. His memory was flagging. But ultimately, I have to tell you, after six months or so, or a year, you know, some time period less than a year, um, he, he simply couldn't do his job. The engineering functions were just too high, too high skilled, and he just didn't have the recollection ability to do it. And it was so sad. And, you know, I will say the good thing about that was they spent such a long time accommodating him that he was able to apply for um social security disability benefits, which are really not nearly enough to tide you over for the rest of your life, but it allowed the family to make arrangements for this long-term employee as he, as he transitioned to something else. That was rough. Oh, I'm sure I can't even imagine, you know, and, and that that is the difficult thing, right, with with mental health is, you know, it's it, it is easy for us to focus on the negative aspects of it. Things like um, kind of mental illness, right, depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, all those things. And it's it's for whatever reason, it's harder for us to celebrate the good things about mental health, things like maybe, you know, work related things like flow um, things like, um, you know, different ways of 
team cohesion and uh, team building in the workplace, you know, different things that we can look at in the, the positive side of mental health. And hopefully we can circle around to some more positive stories because I'm sure you have a ton of those as well. Um, yeah, especially people who are, you know, I mean, you know, this is the great thing about work now is that there are so many more resources now available. You talk about the good news of mental health. And, and one is your podcast is, is simply raising awareness to the fact that mental health is a reality. Right. It affects a huge swath of the population. In fact, I think anybody listening to this podcast and anyone who knows anyone listening to this podcast likely knows somebody who has experienced significant mental health issues um, to the point where at least maybe not permanently, but they've been temporarily debilitated um, from daily life activities or a job. The, the, the good news in this area is really not only the employer's obligation to accommodate, which is, I think when you ask me, you know, what, what do I like about my job? That's reminding people. You have to, I have got a call today from an employee troubled um, who you know, get this, she's single woman in her fifties, has a daughter in just out of college. They live together. And these two women, both of whom work, are supporting uh, the employee's 97-year-old mom who has advanced stage dementia, you know, likely won't even live because her brain's capacity to sustain her life is, is dwindling quickly. But, you know, here's the good news about that. I mean, and that, that's a tough circumstance that you're preparing for, you know, 97 years is a tremendous life. Um, but here's what's cool about that from an employment law perspective. And I was telling her, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to go to your supervisor and ask for family and medical leave, which is a federal guarantee. Your employer has it as well and is a, for a long-term employee, you only have to work for a year to be eligible for FMLA and rack up 1,250 hours in that year. So you can be a part-time employee, but you need to go to your supervisor and you need to let your supervisor know because the Family Medical Leave Act or FMLA specifically allows employees to care for their parents, and it includes care for mental health issues, for their, you know, even just to sit by her bed and hold her hand yeah. is covered by the Family Medical Leave Act. To me, that's tremendously good news that yeah. you can spend some time in the twilight of your mother's life to, um, you know, help transition her to the next phase um, of her life um, and then eventual death is so meaningful for people that they want to have their job, not have to worry about their job. And so we had a nice long conversation with her talking about how do I manage my job? Because not surprisingly, why was she calling me? Because her employer, maybe not fully aware about this circumstance, or you know, this is now in your world, going to talk about supervisors, maybe not fully appreciating this person's circumstance was really rattling the saber about potentially um, disciplining this supervisor for being so distracted by the need to care for this uh, mom. Yeah. And just the need to grieve, like even though the mom is still alive, like obviously there's some grief going on about they're losing the mom, right? Yeah, absolutely. Slow process and dementia. I mean, 
I'm I'm fortunate enough to not have had a direct experience with that yet, and I hope not to. But I mean, it's just such a common affliction, uh, and and how tough that must be for for those who go through it to to have to grieve that while it's going on. Um, and you know, I'd love to hear from you. I mean, I I'm always hopeful about this. I think people are getting the message that people are very sympathetic to assisting other people manage grief. But I don't know. I, I mean. I wonder what you think about that. Do you have your you have your finger more in the pulse of this than I do? Maybe. Do you think people generally um, are good about letting people grieve, or even identifying when people are grieving? You know, that's uh, wow, great question. Um, and with all things mental health, unfortunately, the answer is always it depends. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I think it's, it, it is interesting, right? Because it is a universal experience, things similar to things like depression, things like anxiety. We all, we all struggle with various forms and various levels of depression and anxiety. And the same goes true for, for grief, right? Um, we all lose people, um, some more than others, some in more traumatic and horrifying ways than others, right? And, and we all lose important people in our lives. And yet, we don't know how to handle that, right? I mean, it's it's hard for me to not get out of my own personal biases and experiences with it, um, just because I don't I don't do a ton of grief work. I, I am working with a couple clients right now, and I'm working through some grief. So it's it's hard for me to say on a more global or communal scale, you know, how, how are we getting better at handling and identifying grief? Um, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know if, if things are getting better. Um, I think it's just interesting from a more individual level, how people will personally for, on the one hand, personally, identify their own grief or lack thereof, right? Maybe they're not even recognizing that they're grieving, right? I, you know, like I said, I'm working with one client now. I've been working with her for months and months and months now, and we still haven't even really gotten into deep grief of, uh, you know, it's an elderly client and I think she's in her seventies, lost her brother and another close family member pretty, pretty quickly and is now just being confronted by this existential dread of, oh, here comes my death kind of thing right and you know and like i said i mean we've been working on so many other things that but but i I can kind of see this underlying grief and and she doesn't even recognize it right and it's something i keep you know it's it's been a long process to say the least of trying to bring this to her awareness um and and this is all to say you know that sometimes we don't even recognize that we're grieving sometimes we don't know what to call it sometimes we um, exhibit that grief in things like anger. You know, maybe we externalize it into various behaviors or um, experiences that are ultimately negative for our health, things like substance use, right? And so it is interesting that more often than not, when I'm working with individuals working on grief, they they either don't recognize that they're grieving or they just don't even know how to grieve properly and how to get out of that grief. I think of it, I know I've been talking a lot, but I've, I have another client who, again, is working on some, some significant grief and it's, 
and I don't know if this is answering your question, but it, it is interesting to think about, you know, like this client will, you know, and again, this is a common experience for most people with grief, but they will tell themselves different narratives, right, around the grief that ultimately places them in the center of it, of causing um, or playing a role in that loss, when maybe they didn't even have a role to begin with. Maybe it was just a loss, you know, maybe it was just an unexpected, unrelated loss. Like, for example, this one client who um, lost their dad and, and the dad and mom were on vacation the week prior to the death and came back home, pretty much passed away as soon as he came home. And the client, you know, just starts internalizing all of this, you know, whoa, I should have been there. Like I should have done more. And it's like, well, you weren't even there, right? Like you, you had no role in this. You had no way to affect this change. And yet it's interesting, the stories we can tell ourselves about grief. Um, it, it would be so cool, Josh, this conversation fascinates me because you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time since I've been an, uh, an employment lawyer for a long time. You know, for, you know, I said we have all these resources now, but there has to be some way to get your level of understanding to supervisors. I'm going to say this in another um, story that I'd love to know what you think could have been done about this. Because what my big pitch would be is somehow like where I do training about workplace rights, But what I don't do, and of course, I wouldn't want to make anybody a psychologist, but what I don't do is educate people about identifying grief or identifying stress or identifying, um, you know, mental illness. Um, um, But but it's so valuable. So I had this weird thing happen. Now, it had no legal issues. It was just a company I represented, but they were telling me this is now a couple of decades ago, but I always want to know what you think about this. So I'll never forget it. So um, company supervisor works there, has assistant, his executive assistant, longtime executive assistant, um, happen to be female. I don't know if that's really relevant in this story, but supervisor has longtime uh, executive assistant. Um uh, live for her job. We, you know, we, we just talk about this, you know, all of the self-esteem is built in her job. Um, she happened to be married and um, she, and I'll try to make this a short story because I know your podcast is limited time, but you know, she um, had been married forever. She and her spouse never had kids. They were very tight, very close, lived for each other, a longstanding marriage. And then um, suddenly, unexpectedly, the executive assistant, the employee's spouse died um, much too young, unexpected. I think it was, a, it might've been a heart attack. It was just unexpected. Um, probably if I remember correctly, maybe in his you know early fifties and she likely was in her late forties, early fifties. So I told the story because this is how it came to, to me. So immediately after that, um, everybody, um, you know, immediately embraced, everyone at work embraced this woman whose spouse had died unexpectedly. And um, over the course of the next few months, this employee's um, physical appearance, hygiene um, deteriorated rapidly. She um, didn't seem to care. She ended up um, losing a ton of weight. She stopped wearing makeup. 
she not that that was required for the job or anything but she had been quite the fashion plate she was quite sophisticated she always dressed to the to her you know um to, to, you know in her best and so she really did deteriorate here's where it got weird um so the supervisor her boss mm-hmm. really took her under his wing started to invite her to you know family dinners um, made her part of the family. Had, she came over at Christmas with his family um, and his kids, you know, really expended a huge amount of time, talked to her for long hours because she was very, very sad as a result of living uh, of losing her spouse. Here's where it got strange, uh, stranger than that. I mean, that she was grieving mightily. But what happened was now over the course of some time period, instead of deteriorating, and after spending time with the supervisor, she started to improve her physical appearance, started to gain weight again, she started to dress well, she wore makeup, her hair looked fantastic, she regained the generally attractive and you know, vivacious and you know, obviously good employee that she was known to be. You know why I tell that story? Is that one Friday, she goes home from work, says goodbye to her boss. And that weekend, she took her own life. Yeah. And you know what? The, you, they had grief counselors come. And the psychologist told people something to the effect, and I wasn't there, but I do, I do work with psychologists. So the psychologist said something to, to the effect of that her gaining her physical appearance back, putting on these nice clothes, is that she had come to the planning phase of joining her spouse and she would never want her spouse to see her in a way other than she thought he might expect when she took her own life and why that story was horrible is that supervisor i don't know if he ever i don't know you know imagine he had to explain to his whole family that had embraced this employee he felt like he had somehow failed because he didn't identify this issue. And it always stuck in my mind. It's one of the saddest stories about work. And because a great person, um, you know, took her own life to join her spouse, at least that's what it was reported. But if somebody at work had been able to identify this, she might still be alive today. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we need from people like you to somehow give people sufficient bits of information that they could, uh, I don't know if it would be possible in that circumstance, but it would be very good if they could have potentially given that supervisor sort of a heads up that, hey, maybe she's not getting better. Maybe she's made a commitment to take her own life. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so glad that you brought the story up and, and some of these ideas up. Um, and, and the reality is, is it, you, you can't know for sure. Right. I mean, suicide is such a complex area of life and, you know, I've done some episodes on it already. I've planned on doing some more. I've actually got uh, somebody really big in the suicide field um, coming up in later episodes, which will hopefully maybe I can, you know, pass this story along, you get her opinion on it, but you know, 
let's just start at the beginning. You know, the, the beginning of the story it sounds like a typical grief response, right? I mean, you lose somebody who you have done life with for so long, somebody you love so dearly, like your spouse, you know, like I can't imagine losing my spouse in such an unexpected way. You know, of course you're going to grieve. Of course you're going to be depressed. I think uh, that's sometimes an issue when, and I'm not saying this is the case in this story, but that's sometimes an issue in mental health where, you know, we go around throwing diagnoses out left and right. And especially in areas like grief, you know, there's a lot of people who get diagnoses of major depressive disorder or, um, you know, there's a new diagnosis, complicated, uh, bereavement disorder, I think is what it's called. And, um, and, and maybe in this case that, that would, the latter would be, um, fitting because this is obviously a pretty complicated way of grieving, right? I mean, not everybody who grieves goes and, and unfortunately dies by suicide. Right. Um, and, so, so a lot of it makes sense, right? I mean, obviously she was depressed, you know, those are, those are common signs of depression, right? Physical changes, things like losing weight or gaining weight, right? It could be either, or, um, you know, decrease attention to activities of daily living or ADLs, right? So not showering, not taking care of basic hygiene, you know, not being able to cook or care for themselves, those different things. And so those are important signs to look out for, um, and we, we have to take a step back and recognize, by and large, you know, you know we're not mental health professionals unless you are, right? Um, so it's, it's, it is hard to not take that on and, and say, wow, like, if only I had known, right? If only I knew X, Y, or Z, I could have done better. I could have done this. Um, thinking of maybe this, this supervisor, for example, um, and, and what if you knew, right? Does that, does that mean that they're not going to continue to follow through? Does that mean that their mental illness, um, that this affliction that they have is not going to continue to develop independently? I don't know, right? I don't know. Um, it's, it's a tricky situation, right? I think that's why we do what we can to increase awareness. And I just wish you could have gotten her to some type of Right. Not that she necessarily would have gone, you know, that perhaps better than anyone, not that she would have taken him up and not that he even thought necessarily to get her to some type of grief counselor or counseling or therapist. And I don't know what place she was at where he could have even done that. Yeah. Um, you know, he did what he knew, you know, right. bring Thanksgiving, love her up. From what it from what it sounds like he did the best he could, right? Community is such a huge thing with any form of mental illness, depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, uh, uh, psychotic disorders, bipolar, mood disorders, whatever you want to say, community is huge, right? Community is what saves us. I, I believe that. Um, you know, I, I brought this up the other day, but uh, the concept of post-traumatic growth, being able to come back from your trauma and not only just return to a previous level of functioning, but go further to an optimal uh, a higher level of functioning than you were before. That's this idea of post-traumatic growth. One of the biggest factors for um, experiencing this type of growth is engaging in community, right? Having a positive support system that actively supports you, right? People are huge. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the the love that must have been this heart and the care and compassion is is not to be understated in this situation. And, you know, 
it's it's not uncommon for I, I would argue it's not uncommon for somebody who is depressed, who is grieving when they are getting supported, when they are being able to be around others. It 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 would make sense to me. You know, I'm hearing the story. I'm like, oh, okay, it makes sense that she's getting better. And that's not, you know, it's it's it depends, right? Uh it it that explanation the psychologist gave could very well be true, right? Yeah. Plus, you know, I'm so you called it post-traumatic post-traumatic uh, growth. growth. Yeah. I mean, this is just in the concept of uh, the context of trauma, I guess, but um, oh, I'm so intrigued by, it. you know, it's really weird on that. Um, you, I mentioned I was in the military I deployed twice with Navy SEALs. They're the elite warriors. of, oh, wow. of the Navy. Yeah. And so I had a friend that I deployed with. He was a SEAL officer and he was on my deployment with me, but he also used to be in charge of recruiting for the SEALs. And he was telling me one time, this might be interesting to you. Um, I had, I asked him, I said, so, you know, like they have this huge washout rate, you know, but these, a lot of these people who apply for this are super athletes. I mean, they're like people who are, you know, in many ways, physically gifted in so many ways. And I said, um, you know, why do so many people drop out? Or more importantly, can you tell who's got the better shot of making it through the rigorous training? And you know what he told me? I think you would find this interesting. And I've never like looked into it any further. It was just, you know, we're having a you know dinner time conversation. Right. So I, I was just, I'll never forget this is he goes, yeah, you know, we actually surveyed this. Um, and we found that the people who get through our training and are successful in our training um, evolution generally fall into two camps. Um, you know, not, you know, no such thing as a general rule, but the, by far and away, the two things that give people the, at least that people who made our training um, successfully were uh, n- number one, uh, people who were raised in farming and ranching families who learn at a very young age the power of hard work and effort. And so they're used to consistent effort instead of like, you know, instead of like running hundred yards for a touchdown and then taking a week off, they're used to going out milking the cows every day in winter. And then the other one he said, which is what made me think about your comments is he said, the other group, interestingly, is people when they were young who have survived and uh, made their way through adverse childhood events. Like, you know, they had something traumatic happened to them as a child and they um, use the word growth and they grew from the experience um, gives them the stick, the ability to re-engage that when the circumstances get difficult for them again. So that's why, you know, like, like that would be, if you could bottle that, post-traumatic growth we would have a we would have a huge number of healthier people in our uh, in our society yeah I, you're speaking to so many good things and uh, what you're referring to now is this uh it was a study done in the oh god i don't even remember when was it the 90s or was that too far back i don't know that's not important but there's a study done on uh what you're referring to as adverse childhood experiences when there's a questionnaire that is commonly used in trauma screenings called the ACE questionnaire, the adverse childhood experiences questionnaire. And it's a 10 item questionnaire. Yes or no answer is really simple. And it uh, screens for some of those really traumatic experiences that you maybe are exposed to uh, as 
a, a child as somebody under the age of 18. And so it asks questions such as, you know, questions related to physical abuse, sexual, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, uh, things like, did you have a, a parent or family member go to jail? Did you, did your parents separate or divorce? That's one of the questions. So that alone is an adverse childhood experience. And that alone can cause significant stress in the child developmentally causing further, um, you know, problems later in life. Uh, so I'm really glad you brought this up because, you know, and this is kind of tying in everything I think we've been talking about in this end of like, how, how do we, how do we identify these things, right? How do we support those who are suffering right now? What can we do as the lay person, as the, as the employee, as the friend, as the family member, what can we do to support somebody who's struggling? Um, the answer is there's a lot, right? And the very first thing we should be doing is starting with ourselves, right? Identifying uh, those things in ourselves. For example, things like stress, right? You know, you mentioned, um, I don't know if you mentioned this, but I'm thinking of uh, working at the jail, right? Um, something that we're trying to do, I'm, I'm talking with a coworker right now about leading this trauma training and I'm trying to sneak in so I can do some of this work, but um you know, we get so many deputies who are just so lost on how to work with some of these inmates who, again, are struggling with mental health, uh, maybe are just in general difficult to work with because they're defiant, they're um, so stressed out about whatever reason they're in jail or what, you know, different legal things, I'm sure. And they don't know how to handle it, right? And so, again, one of the best ways is, okay, how do we start with ourselves, right? Um, this is the same thing. We can compare this situation also to parents, right? How do we manage unruly children, right? Stressed out children, children who are distressed. It starts with you. If you can have a self-regulated body, if you can have a self-regulated system in any situation, right? Um, then that other person is also going to be able to start regulating. It's, it's, it's scientific. We have things called mirror neurons that will mirror um, the affect of another person. So uh, for example, if I'm in a counseling session with somebody who's just bawling, super distressed, right? If I continue to remain calm and self-regulated, right? Automatically, that doesn't mean they're going to get down to zero, right? But they're going to start to self-regulate on their own because I'm self-regulated. The same thing goes for parents with their children. The same thing goes for deputies and their inmates, right? If we can learn to self-regulate, if we can learn to identify those things in ourselves, then I think that's a great first step, right? Um, you know, you mentioned the supervisor, right? In that story, who, how do we identify that they're struggling with depression? Well, what does that, what does that look like for you? Right? Have you taken that time to self-reflect? Have you taken that time to um, to manage that in your own life? Right? Because again, like I said, we've all experienced some level of depression. Right? Um, we may not even label it as depression. Right? And that's okay. Um, but I mean, you could take even something more common like stress. Right? Everybody deals with stress. Stress can be a good thing sometimes. Right? And especially in American culture where we're productivity you know, yeah. even oriented, right? Uh, stress is huge and people do not know how to self-regulate. They don't know how to handle it. And I'm going to share the secret to managing stress. <laughs> Please do. I need to know it. 
it's it's surprisingly simple and it's it's so fascinating that so many people don't know these things and it's something i've already alluded to but you know we think of stress right we think of the things that it causes for us right we think you know it makes me irritable it makes my heart beat you know my heart rate faster it makes me breathe really fast but not really deep right it has these physiological effects on us um and it's caused by these, what we think are these various different things in our life, things like work, things like relationships, money, kids, whatever it might be, traffic, right? Um, and here's something I tell my clients, right? I, I literally walk them through. I make this list with them. Here's the causes of your stress. Here's the effects, right? Here's what we're seeing is happening to us because of this anxiety, because of the stress. And here's what we're blaming it for, uh, on, right? And I, I make this list with them and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, and I turn it around and I'm like, okay, so this list right here, as long as you continue to believe that these things, these events, these causes that you've identified are, con- are the cause of your stress, then you're always going to continue to struggle with stress. You're going to continue to not be able to manage your stress, right? Because those things in and of themselves are not causing our stress. And it's so easy for us to think so, right? Yeah. But like work doesn't have to be stressful, right? Relationships don't have to be stressful. They often are, right? and that's just a reality of life. But in and of themselves, they aren't, right? It's, those are not the things that are stressful, right? What's stressful is how our body reacts to those experiences, right? Because of past learning experiences, right? At some point, right? Let's take traffic for an example. Somebody, you know... It, it could just even be a regular day driving on I-25, right? And there's going to be bad traffic. Clearly, yes. At some point in your driving history, you have had a negative learning experience, right? That your body reacted to, right? Maybe it was somebody cutting you off in traffic. Maybe it was somebody honking at you or giving or you- Or you missed a meeting or, you know. Right? And, and your body reacts with stress, it reacts with muscle tension, it rea- reacts with constriction, and your body remembers these things. And so later on when you're in traffic, you're automatically stressed again, right? How often, you know, if, if that, if traffic, you know, if you just check in with yourself, how often are you stressed while you're in traffic? That's probably because you've had multiple past learning experiences that were really stressful for you and your body, right? Um all this to say, I bring it back, right? Uh, all this to say, um, those are not the things causing your stress. Those are antecedents, right? They come, they're the trigger for your stress, but it's really about how your body perceives the stress, right? And so if that's, if that's true, right, then the answer to dealing with our stress is self-regulating our body, right? Because like I said earlier, we, it's physiologically um, impossible for our body for us to be stressed and a relaxed body. And so if we can enter these, um, what we call perceived threat responses, right? If we enter these situations that our body is perceiving as a threat, right? With a relaxed body, then we're not going to be stressed. We're not going to have that same stress response. And if we can practice that, we continue to practice that we're going to be able to manage our stress. And that's the key to managing our stress. I'll guarantee you that if you practice that, you know, checking in with yourself, releasing the muscle tension in your body, I'm, I'm simplifying. I'm not going over or even just meditating or even stretches or, I mean, there's so many things you can do to relax your body. 
you know, check in with yourself right now. Like, you know, take 10 seconds, run down your body. Where do you notice muscle tension? My back. back. Yeah. Right. Muscle tension is our way, is our body's way of telling us we're in danger. That's another fact. Right. Chuck, are you in danger right now? Something your body is telling you something about this is, is dangerous, right? Something about this is scary, right? How interesting is that? Right. And so if we, we practice releasing that muscle tension, this is not going to be <laughs> a scary experience for you, right? As this long as you don't start holding up the Rorschach, uh, you know, ink blots. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Somewhere on my bookshelf, right? Um, I, I kind of jumped around a lot of that, but all of this to say, right? Um, you know, you, you're sitting here wondering, how, how do we help those that we know is, are struggling, right? It starts with you. Starts with making sure that you're self-regulated. Starts that with making sure that um, you know you are doing your own work with your mental health, and that you are in a good place to be able to support others. It's 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 like the airplane metaphor, right? You can't you know put somebody else's mask on if you don't have your own mask on. Yeah, exactly. Um, so do the work, right? I mean, it's it can be a hard thing. Right. And it's it's not even to say that you have to go to counseling or you have to do X, Y or Z. But are you checking in with yourself? Are you managing your stress appropriately? Um, are you managing your mood in general? Right. Because if if you aren't managing your own mood, how do you expect to, to manage somebody else's? Right? And that's that's just the first line of defense that I would want people to take away from from some of your stories. And Yeah, I love it. I think people need to hear it. I think it's important. And I hope that organizations can hear people who feel that they can say that and get some help. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it it comforts me knowing that you're out there doing the good work and and doing what you can to to help with some of that. So I'm going to keep following you, Josh, to see how you're going to change people's view and make the world better. Hey, maybe, man. Starts with uh, one episode, I guess. So fantastic thank you for letting me be part of it Uh, thank you i I really appreciate your time and uh, your thoughts and insights and it was such a pleasure hey let's do it again at some point in time when uh i'd love it especially if it relates to anybody's rights in the workplace i would love to continue to have a conversation and go a little bit deeper even next time awesome well hey thanks chuck i appreciate your time yeah josh thanks also what you do in your uh regular job not just your podcasting Hey, I appreciate that. And I'm glad our paths crossed, and I hope we can keep that keep the uh, the dialogue open. Yeah, me too. I'm uh, planning to stay in touch, and yeah, we'll have to have you back for another episode. I'd love to do you, that. You can contact me anytime, my friend. <laughs>